the body is the medium through which we feel the world. And our relationship with the world is what we are essentially trying to sort out for the whole of our lives and how to honor that rather than giving total dominance to sorting out our ideas about the world. And to me, there's a radical difference between coming into known relationship with the world and coming into felt relationship with the world. Hey folks, welcome to the Brilliant Body Podcast, a forum to learn about and liberate the brilliance of your body and ultimately to expand the meaning and experience of intelligence. Join me, Ali Mazay, and other body masters to explore pioneering and varied perspectives on what it means and feels like to be embodied. So many people feel disconnected from their bodies due to emotional or physical pain or even conditioning and lack of education. Others feel quite at home in their bodies yet want to learn to have more pleasure, awareness, and access to the body's guidance. This podcast is for everybody. Each one of my trailblazing guests has studied their own bodies and others' bodies for decades and will share their expertise and unique mission, how to thrive as a body. So join us and reclaim your body's brilliance. Hello, you brilliant bodies. This following episode is a recording from a live audience Q&A event we recently hosted with Philip Shepard, renowned leader in the global embodiment movement, creator of the Embodied Present Process, TEP, and author of Radical Wholeness and New Self, New World. You may have listened to our episode three, Embodied Intelligence with Philip Shepard, Wholeness, Sensitivity in the Pelvic Bowl, where Philip and I discuss, among many other brilliant things, the geography of intelligence and the significance of the pelvic bowl as the base of experiencing our wholeness, the de-evolution of Western culture from valuing the belly as the center to the current emphasis on the head and mistrust of the body, sensitivity as the foundation of intelligence as we explore the nuances of restoring sensitivity, particularly in trauma survivors, and the fallacy of independence, as Philip vividly describes the self as being in constant felt relationship with the world. The following event was inspired by the enthusiastic feedback of this episode. So we wanted to provide an opportunity for our audience to interact with Philip and me, Ali, and ask some questions. We hope you enjoy listening as much as we enjoyed hosting and participating in this conversation. So, Philip, welcome. Ben Bright, Q&A. And you are very welcome to either start us off or draw us into a journey more deeply in and of and for our bodies, if you feel like doing that. Yeah, I, I, I think to share a little practice might ground us and... Uh maybe even give a platform for questions that may come up. And I'd like to share a practice that defies the cultural messaging that we've received that the head is, is where we think and it's only from the head that we know the world and the body is left as this apparatus to move the head around and execute its orders. And 
there are other cultures that inhabit the body in a very different way. Um, there's a, you know, even in, even in the Western tradition, there's a word that Homer uses over and over and over, and I, I don't know why it's not more deeply questioned, but the word is freen or freenies, P-H-R-E-N, and it, it only translates into English with two words. It means mind, it also means diaphragm. And you think, well, how could they have got their anatomy so wrong? But it's not anatomical. It's experiential. It, it is from that place in the body that they feel their thinking, that they feel the world around them, that they speak. And so there's one translator of Homer, my favorite translator, who preserves that sense of freeing. He'll have a character occasionally say, the mind within my breast understands your words. And it's just such a different experience of self and world to feel it from, from the heart, from the belly, from the pelvic floor. And I'd like to explore that with you. There's one center that comes up as the second chakra in some cultures. In Japanese, it comes up as tanden. And it's a center in the body that is just a little below the belly button at the very center of your body. It's like an inch or two below the belly button, but at the center of your body. And I'd invite you before we start the exercise just to allow that to show up for you. It is waiting to be felt. It is just a natural energy center in the body. And allow your attention to lightly drift towards it and it will show up if you allow it to be subtle and as it shows up it will deepen into its own presence for you and you'll feel it as a very clear center so i'll give you a moment just to recognize that center within yourself and then bring your awareness to the breath and what would happen if you allowed the body's intelligence to be in charge of the breath without any supervision? What would happen if you just pause a little, wait, and then the in-breath comes by itself, and you allow it to flood the body? And then the whole body releases naturally to the out-breath. And the body, the body is completely fluid. There is an inner ocean within the body, and it's that fluidity that enables all the exchanges of the body that keep us healthy. And to feel that fluidity, and to feel the breath as a wave that travels through it. You may feel that wave travel even into the legs, even down to the soles of your feet. Or you may feel that wave travel up through the body to the top of the head or down through the arms to the fingertips. And be aware that as that breath wave washes through the body, your sense of the body changes. It becomes less boundaried from the world around it. 
it becomes a little more porous, a little more spacious. And within the body's spaciousness, I'd invite you to entertain the phrase, I am here, and allow that phrase to live in your head. So you feel that phrase in the head, I am here, and it gently repeats, I am here. I am here. I am here. Until you feel yourself centered in the head. And as that happens for you, I'd invite you to notice how that feels. To feel yourself centered in the head. And, and it's not that there's one way it should feel or a right way it should feel, but it's so important for yourself to notice how that feels. And maybe even for yourself, give it a word. It may feel confined, it may feel familiar, it may feel strong, whatever comes up for you, just to notice as clearly as you can how that feels. And then gently, gently allow that phrase to release. And as it does, it begins to drift down through the body and it's finding its way gently, gently towards the heart. And you feel it descend and it arrives at the heart and settles there and comes to rest. And in the heart, it gently repeats, I am here. I am here. I am here. And it repeats until you feel yourself centered in the heart. So that you are knowing the world, feeling the self from that place. And soften into the experience. And as you do, notice how it feels. And if you can put a word to how that feels, I'd invite you to do so, just to log it, just to tag it for yourself. To be centered in the heart and to know the world from there. And then ever so gently allow that phrase to release from the heart. And again, you feel it begin to drift down through the body and it's finding its way towards the tanden, that place, that center, at the middle of your body, just below the belly button. And it drops and drops and arrives and comes to rest there. And again, it gently repeats, I am here. I am here until you feel yourself centered in the Tanden. And again, see if you can soften into that experience rather than setting it as something to achieve or to make happen, just soften into it so that you're aware of the world 
from that place. You are centered in the body, in that place. And notice how the world feels as you rest there. Notice how your presence in the world feels. And then we'll let that phrase once more gently release. And it begins to drift down through the pelvic bowl. And it drops through its depths as a pebble tossed into a pond might seek the bottom. And you feel it drifting down, drifting down. And feel it approach the pelvic floor the very base of your torso and feel it gently come to rest there as a dandelion seed might drift and come to rest on the earth. And when you feel it arrive, allow it to gently repeat, I am here. I am here until you feel yourself centered there on the ground of your being. And again, soften into it, release into it. And as you do, notice how it feels. Notice how your awareness of the world around you feels. Notice how you feel the world from that place. And maybe if you could put a word for yourself to how that feels. See if you can do that as a way of tagging it, as a way of helping you remember. And you rest there and you attune to the world around you. And see where that takes you. And that, that brings the practice to a formal close, but I'd invite you to linger there as long as you wish. You know, Philip, this reminds me, or makes me realize why hypnosis might work is because it tends to draw people so deeply in just through the relaxation so that they are able to access what the body knows about past, present, and future, and perhaps what's at the crux of whatever thing somebody is wanting to contact through that hypnosis. So thank you for that. Yeah. For 
All kinds of reasons, including that revelation. So it's a lovely insight. Thank you for that. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you a question or two, and then we're going to turn it over to the group because I'm sure people want to partake. You talk about the whole body being a part of thought, that the body thinks. And that word itself, for me anyway, connotes something that involves words. And I would just love to hear more about how that is for you. How do you experience the thought or the mind of the body? That's, that's a great one. Every young child does. And just to, just to recognize how systematically we've been trained out of the body into the head. I mean, that's the project of the public school system. The overarching goal is to put the body to sleep and to fill your head with the ideas that will enable you to succeed within that system. And we come out of that system believing that we can think more clearly if we, if we dull or, or shut down our awareness of what's below the neck and just concentrate in the head. So one thing that transition out of the body into the head does, one effect it has is to denature what we understand as thought. So we associate thinking with language. And how do you think without language? I'd like to reframe thought. I think thought is the processing of a relationship. So I can take numbers one and three and process that relationship and realize, well, when I subtract one from three, I get two. When I multiply one by three, I get three. I could divide three divided by one. I, I, can, I can process the relationships. And I'm thinking about that, but the body processes over a billion times more relationships than we can be consciously aware of. Every breath precipitates a, a wealth of new relationships between the blood and the oxygen and the cells. There are so many, you know, goosebumps that respond to temperature, the iris expanding and contracting in ways we're not aware of. The body is processing so many relationships. And then it's processing relationships that are not just about its functioning, but about its relationship with the world. It is attuning to danger. It is attuning to opportunity. It's attuning to subtle shifts in the environment around us. It has a phenomenal capacity to guide us. And when you rely on conscious thinking to guide yourself, you are relying on this tiny pool of information. You're relying on your model of the world, not the world itself, but your model of the world that you are tinkering with and adjusting. But when you access the body and its thinking, its processing of relationship, there is a unity, there is a field rather than uh, advantages and disadvantages, the pointillistic sort of ways we have of consciously thinking. And within that field, the body's intelligence attunes and knows its way forward. 
And so to talk about the thinking of the body, I think it's really important to look at the nature of thought and and uncouple it from language. I love it. That brings me to my other question, which in our episode, you talked about the vigilance of the present. And when I even think of the word vigilance, it tends to feel very kind of hyper sympathetic nervous system-y, you know, and tight and contracted and hyper aware. So could you talk about what many of us think of in terms of vigilance in contrast to the vigilance of the present and how we can perhaps rely more on that than many of us realize we can? Yeah, I think what we move into in our culture is a state of hypervigilance where it's driven by anxiety and watchful and, as you say, in that sympathetic nervous system state. Just to say, vigilance is necessary to our survival. You know, it's an awareness of our environment that selects things to pay attention to. So my vigilance might feel the presence of my wife, Allison, coming along. Vigilance might alert you to a medicinal plant. Vigilance might alert you to to danger. The present is a field in which everything affects everything else at all times. There is so much information within that field. It is aware of everything. And to join the present is to join its vigilance, which so far surpasses anything I could consciously bring to bear on it. And this vigilance is something that indigenous cultures are clear about. They feel animals moving through the woods. They feel the presence of water when they're thirsty. They attune through the vigilance of the present and rely on it and its almost impeccable guidance. I'm so happy I asked that question. And I'm greedy to ask more, but I'm going to open it up to people to see if anybody wants to go ahead and ask a question. And if you don't jump in pretty quickly, I'm going (laughs) to elbow you out and ask another one. So please raise your hand. I just wanted to say within this context, there is no such thing as a dumb question. It just doesn't exist. If you have a question and you can find its way into words, you'll be helping everyone. Fantastic. Help me pronounce your name properly. When we met, Ali, I was Allison. So oh, I too. Okay. I to bay, the emphasis on the last syllable. I bay. Yes. Okay. Please go ahead. Yeah. Thank you so much, Philip. Thank you for being here and entertaining us, entertaining our questions. Well, I, I want to build on the question that Ali asked about knowing and your answer about thought. My work is focused on education, on parents and and educators, and about, you could say, it's a pedagogy of the body. Mm. Um, What does it mean if we open ourselves to the information that's available when we think with all of our senses and not just our brain? And of course, when that happens, the very nature of what we think of as information and learning changes. And I would love to hear you talk about that, how you understand that. 
Yeah, I go back to, I think it was Plutarch. It's credited to Yates, but I think it's Plutarch who said, education isn't about filling a bucket. It's about igniting a fire. To me, every child, unless they've been deeply traumatized, is curious about the world, about this blade of grass, about what happens if I push this over. Curiosity is the fire and how to, how to nourish the fire to me is, is the overriding question. So, you know, education is so top down. We say, well, the child should learn this in this order. Learning is such an individual adventure and how to let it be an adventure, how to give, provide what the child needs. And a child who's curious enough will want to know how to read, will will want to know how to count. These tools will facilitate their unique quest is how I think of it. I think every child is born with this unique cluster of gifts that the world is summoning forth. And then how to facilitate that. And yes, it is a pedagogy of the body. Yes, the body is the medium through which we feel the world. And our relationship with the world is what we are essentially trying to sort out for the whole of our lives and how to honor that rather than giving um, total dominance to sorting out our ideas about the world. And to me, there's a radical difference between coming into known relationship with the world and coming into felt relationship with the world. And it's, it's not that one is good and the other is bad. It's just that our culture obsesses over knowing everything to the point where, well, if, if I look around and I know what everything is, why would I bother feeling any of it? And so we drift through our lives not feeling the world around us. And I'm going to follow up with this because as I take in what you're saying, I'm aware that there, you know, what's the resistance? Is there a fear? There seems to be that there's some kind of fear of introducing the body or letting the body be the medium through which we know the world as opposed to the structure of the mind, the brain. And I'm curious if you have thoughts about that. What is the fear or resistance to just turn ourselves over to the body as the medium for, for knowing the world? Yeah, that goes so far beyond the issue of children and education. Our culture fears the body. Our culture celebrates the head. Our culture communicates in a million ways that the head should be in charge. And you look at our value system that says up is good and down is bad. And you're looking a little low today. We know what that means in another culture. It might mean you're looking at peace with yourself and at rest on the earth. But as we made this cultural journey of consciousness, where we moved from the belly up to Freenies, up to the, the Homeric space, up into the head, and in Plato's day, we are in the head. You, you look at Timaeus, his dialogue, and the wise Timaeus is explaining to people how the gods fashioned us. And well, first, they fashioned this divine sphere based on the orbs of the heaven. And then they realized this thing wouldn't be able to get around. So they grew it a vehicle, arms and legs and a body. And there we are, 350 BC. And we are celebrating the head and demeaning the body. And I think 
a large part of this journey away from the body into the head is our very, very long cultural journey away from the female and towards the male. And we celebrate the male and we demean the female in the same way that we celebrate the head and demean the body. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Fantastic. Sarah, go ahead. Hi, thank you for this. So a little bit inspired by what Ali was saying earlier about hypnosis, a conversation that I have with this wonderful lady who does hypnosis with me. I'm saying to her, but why are you asking me to use my conscious mind to influence my subconscious? Surely the subconscious is much smarter. <laughs> and so my question to you, Philip, would be, where are you mapping the body? Because so much of it is conscious, but so much of it is unconscious. You know, we've got all those processes happening and everything. And our conscious mind can definitely get us in a pickle, can't it, if we're... We're not careful. So can you speak a little bit to that, how to sort of master your mind, but in, in the terms of the greater mind, like the heart houses the mind and, and that sort of thing. But is that a clear question? Oh, yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready to jump at it. it because what it, what it brings up for me is a, a question that was once asked in a workshop. Somebody put up their hand and they said, so Philip, do you always trust your body? And I said, no. No, it's not that I trust my body, it's that I trust my wholeness. Mm. So the body as an instrument that is separate from the present is nonsensical to me. Embodiment isn't about feeling the body. It's not about listening to the body. It's about listening to the world through the body. And so it's that sense of wholeness that I can only find when I'm at rest in the body, but it by no means excludes the rational mind, the conscious mind. It is one murmuration, so to speak, a, a murmuration that is responsive to and participant in the world around it. And I feel, I feel the mindfulness not so much of myself as the mindfulness of the present. That is what I join in my wholeness, is the mindfulness of the present. So gorgeous. <laughs> Does that land yeah, okay with yeah. you, Sarah? Yeah, yeah. Only today I was writing to somebody talking about this is how I'm feeling. And I, it's like a mixture between thinking and feeling, you know, like I think there should be a new word, feeling. <laughs> yeah. If you go back to Latin, the Latin verb sentire means to think, to feel. They were not separate. They were one thing. And our word sense comes from sentire. And both of those meanings are preserved. I might say, you're not making sense, in which case I'm saying your thinking is muddled. Or I might say, I sense something's wrong, in which case I'm saying, I'm feeling something wrong. There is this wound that we carry within us that has divided our thinking from our being so that we feel them as separate things. I don't. What I mean by that is every thought I speak, I am feeling. It is arising from my body. As it emerges through the spaciousness of my body, it is being clarified into words. And it's only through that feeling 
that the word finds its clarity. And similarly, I'm aware that every sensation in my body is a form of thinking. These are relationships within the body that are being processed. So to me, there is no distinction experientially between thinking and feeling. And just to say, we've been taught to speak from our heads. Uh, so the way I was taught to speak is like this, and I can say a whole lot of like really interesting things, and I don't need to feel any of it. As, as you see, that I, it feels horrible <laughs> to, you know, to speak that way. If, I, if I'm not feeling what I'm saying, it's, it's physically painful. Thanks for those questions, Sarah. Kishore, am I saying your name properly? Very well, thank you. <laughs> so um, I live in my head, and I'm an engineer, which reinforces that on a daily basis. And uh, working with embodiment feels very tricky. And my question is specifically around the practice we started with. As I started with my head and that I live here, is that the phrase you use, Philip? I, I am here, yeah. I'm here. And that felt very comfortable. And it felt like the truth. And then as I descended to the heart, it felt like a dogfight. The truth feels like I'm here and I'm trying to be here. And there is this huge magnet, which is like, no, that's not true and pulling me up, and I'm struggling to be here. And then as I descended, that, that tug of war continues. It felt like a lot of violence as I was coming down. And so while there is a relief in being in the body, it feels like, I don't, I don't think I can stay here for long. I need to go back home, because this is where it feels mm -hmm. like home. And I just uh, wanted your sense on how to navigate this war of a different kind, or at least mm -hmm. it feels like that to me. Yeah, no, it's beautifully put, if I may say so. Thank you for that. And just in stark terms, we have turned the body into the underworld and the head into the upper world. And in the underworld of the body, there are demons waiting, there are unresolved energies that are at war. And it's not a personal issue, it's a cultural issue. It's the way our, our culture shapes our very neurology. And so the first thing I do is just to help someone feel their breath, just that. You're joining me in Boise, so we'll, we'll do this. But to gently, gently, gently feel the breath in the body, and the breath is life itself. And to begin to feel that, what you're doing is you're preparing a landing place in the body, because right now it's just an underworld with no place to rest. And we've turned this source of light into a pool of darkness. And breath brings that light back. It's lightness, and it is light. And to newly sensitize 
the body through the breath is for me the most reliable means of gently reclaiming that source of light once again. And I'll leave you with a question that I'd invite you to play with. How gently can you feel the breath? And can you feel it more gently? And to see where that takes you. Thank you. What you said feels connected. So thank you. Oh, wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. I'd like to add something to that, Kishore, because when I moved down my experience, my awareness into my heart, I felt a lot of sadness. And we are also indoctrinated with so much judgment about feeling all kinds of emotion. And what I find is the, the lower I go in my body, or at least in my heart area, the more emotion I'll tend to feel. And some of those emotions I can easily think or believe are somehow negative or somehow frightening or threatening in some way, which gets back to what you were saying about the feminine, Philip, and about a lot of cultures tend to associate emotion with the feminine and our distrust and even disgust of feeling anything <laughs> associated with the feminine. So I just wanted to add that too, that I think part of it is a prejudice against emotion. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. And we internalize how we should be. We've been told how we should be. And so it's such a different thing to find a way to welcome how we are at the moment. And that requires gentleness and patience. Yeah. Steve, what is your question? Yeah, I took your program, the introductory course a year ago. And my question probably, as I was sitting here thinking about my question, it does arise from a, a performance shame that I'm in touch with through counseling. So I, uh, my question was, uh, what can you say of the differences or advantages of spending time relating with people living from their head and those who are living from a greater sense of wholeness embodiment? And um, uh, how do we be with others from that perspective? And again, I'm, I'm trying to disentangle being really present with people rather than performing with people. Do you get that? Oh, <laughs> Yeah, the, the language I use is you have a choice, you can be present or you can be in presentation mode. And presentation mode, it is something that starts in infancy. What do we need as an infant? We need to be seen, we need to be loved, we need to be accepted. And boy, in our culture, we quickly learn one way or another that our wholeness is not acceptable, that we should be a certain way. We're too noisy, we're too fussy, anger isn't allowed, settle down, whatever it is. And we need the approval, so we learn to present ourselves in a way that will win that smile of approval or that hug that we need. And then we go on presenting ourselves as adults. And it's the most natural thing in the world because you want someone to like you, you want them to agree with you, or maybe you want them to see how smart you are, whatever it is, but you cannot be in presentation mode and present at the same time. Presence is a state of receptivity, and 
presentation mode is like a delivery or delivering yourself. And to come to trust the receptivity of presence is to not just give yourself the nourishment of being present, but you are offering a gift to the other person. To be present to them is in, to invite them to be present to themselves. And you can feel when someone's present and you can feel it's like a, a wave, a field that invites you to soften and settle. If I can be receptive without grabbing, without trying to alter or judge, if I can drop into that place, I am present to them in a way that I hope makes it easier for them to be present to themselves. That's interesting because I think that there's a genuine part of me at this late age that has understood my ability to be present with people. I guess I'm still dealing with the hunger for affirmation. So the two are at play, and I guess it's just the journey of working that out. Yeah, also just to say, there's a tacit understanding in social interactions. There's a script we've been giving, and we have to hold up our end of the script. And a lot of the subtext of the script is, I'll support who you know yourself to be if you support who I know myself to be. And it feels rude not to hold up your end of that unwritten bargain. And the option in the give and take of that script, you can just pause. You don't have to just keep it going on, on. You can just pause. And as you pause, you settle down into something more truthful and you make space for the other person to do so as well. And again, it, it can feel rude to do that, but it's a gift. I appreciate that. that that's helpful. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, thank you, Steve. I want to add to that, Philip. It can also just feel not just rude, but dangerous because those scripts were so carefully developed from a young age that this is what will get us that approval. This is what will get us belonging and love. So to abandon those scripts and just be in the improvisation of the present can feel really risky in yeah. terms of getting that acceptance that most of us crave and need. So Absolutely. I just want to... Yeah, to say that and also to just acknowledge what a gorgeous way to describe what we in the trauma therapy world call co-regulation. You just described it in mm. such a palpable and poetic way. So that is basically what we are taught as trauma therapists is how to be so deeply as and of ourselves that other people can feel it either through their mirror neurons or whatever that somatic resonance is so that we can share that and be kind of contagious in that with whomever we're either helping in a professional setting or just being with socially. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. That's lovely. Thank you. Barbara, please. I'm so enjoying this. One thing I wanted to to hear about from your standpoint is this place mm -hmm. of projection. I find myself a lot of times 
after being with somebody, I have a lot of empathy and compassion. And sometimes I feel emotions that I don't feel are mine. Often I'll be with someone who looks pretty sad and I'll come away feeling sad. And I think that to me is a little bit going over the other side of feeling versus think. I mean, I can think it away or I can, you know, the thinking comes in when I'm like, why am I feeling so sad? Yeah, it's a real delicate balance how to be fully receptive and how to be fully grounded at the same time. And that quality of being grounded requires the body. Groundedness is a sense of being, it's three things for me that are all the same thing. It's being at rest in the body. It's being at rest on the earth. It's being at rest in the present. And that quality of rest is something our culture warns us against. Our energy gets higher and higher in the body and the legs become these prosthetics. I remember as a kid lying in the grass, I was completely at rest on the earth. And then we carry ourselves above the earth, but don't rest on it. And so to cultivate within yourself that ability to be grounded within the body, on the earth, in the present, will allay that sense of going out of yourself, being saturated with another person's reality. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad we got that in. Thanks. Yeah. So are you even saying that the more you're feeling and being your wholeness, the more we can alchemize whatever experience or emotion we're imbibing from other people's presence and the permeability of our own being. I don't have a problem with the word alchemize, but I don't think of it that way. The way I think of it is is in the state of my own spaciousness, which is grounded and centered, energy passes through me and there's nothing it's going to get stuck on. And meanwhile, my center is held by the present and resonating to it and attuned to it and guiding me. It's a very different way of experiencing the world from this construct and concept of boundaries that so many of us have been taught. Just to say, I I don't have any problem or objection to boundaries, they can save lives, but you've got to recognize that if you establish a boundary, you have to defend it. And that takes energy. And in my experience, what I trust is my wholeness. And being in my wholeness doesn't mean saying yes to everything. It might mean I run as fast as I can in the other direction. And if I say no from my wholeness, In my experience, it's more likely to be heard than if I say no from a defensive place. Greg? Hi. So the question I had is, as I've kind of slowly moved from my head very slowly into my body more and more, I have come to find that one of the reasons that the head feels like a safe place is 
that it's a lot easier to experience the pain that is in the world, in the body. You're feeling not only the pain that's in your body, but the pain of the body of the earth itself in some way. It's, it's clearer to me how much damage we've done to the earth in some ways. And it's just something that I feel a bit more. And I guess my question is, how do you work with that? Or how do you come to terms with that as just something that is more present the more you are in touch with your body and the earth itself? I cannot save the world, but I'm aware that the world is summoning me. And I think, as I mentioned, each of us has this unique cluster of gifts that no one else in the world has or ever has had. And the world is summoning us to put those into service. It's only through the body, through my willingness to feel the world, that I can feel that summoning. And all I can do is to do my best. And my life is fulfilled in giving it everything I can, knowing I have no control over how the world moves forward. No one can control it, but everyone is participant in it. And so to be informed by the grief and the agony of what is going on, to me is to make myself more vulnerable to how I am being summoned to participate. And I am content to give it everything I possibly can, knowing that there's no guarantee of any outcome. Thank you, Philip. I really appreciate that. Yeah, it's a beautiful and an important question, Greg. Thank you for that. Yeah, I'm so touched by both the question and the answer, Philip. And I have to say, that's exactly why I made this podcast. Mm. And thank you for helping me give something of what I've been summoned to offer the world to do my tiny part. So thank you for that. Yeah. yeah. Sarah, please go ahead. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here and to, to hear me speak, Philip. Thank you for doing this and for Ali for hosting. I have a question, I guess, around this idea of the wholeness and groundedness and the centeredness. Because when we were doing the exercise, I guess what it felt like for me was that as we went deeper towards that pelvic bowl, there was almost like the I am here felt more resonant as we went deeper, the sound reverberated, I guess is what I'm saying, as I went deeper into towards that pelvic bowl. And it's funny because as we got to the space right before the pelvic bowl, I thought, oh, this feels really ancient. Oh, this is where we stop. And then when we got to the pelvic bowl, I was like, oh, this is really quiet, even though it's reverberating, but it's silent, but it's it's like no words. I don't know. I just want to ask about resonance and the silence that was there. It felt like one body versus my body, anybody. It was just like one body. So I'd love to hear your comments about that. Well, I, I loved hearing your description of it. The intelligence in the head 
pulls things to pieces, is incapable of feeling the whole, is convinced of its own rightness, it lives in a fragmented world. And as you drop down through the body and come to rest on the pelvic floor, you are coming to rest in an intelligence that attunes to wholeness, that is guided by being. By being, I don't just mean my being, but being itself. And it, everything is simpler when everything is harmonized by the whole. It's when there is no harmonization of the whole that there is this war among various pieces and factions. And I feel the pelvic floor as the ground of my being. When I come home to myself, that's where I land. When I want to clarify my truth, that's where I go, is to that. So it's like the resting place in the body. And I am most fully myself and most emptied of myself all at the same time. Yes, thank you. Yeah, that fits perfectly. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. I've got a couple more questions. One is, there's so many men here, men people, and I'm so happy to see that. Allison had said earlier that you're seeing more and more men in your groups, which having been in the self-development world for decades now and been in so many groups where there's like one or two male people in them. I'm just really curious what you're seeing about that. What's your sense of that? Any of you men want to say anything about that? I'm just really curious. It feels very hopeful to me. I'm happy to speak to it briefly. I think men for a long time were in charge. Men were represented as the proper human being and women as, well, a secondary sort of human being. And so men were less inclined to question anything because they had it all. And women, meanwhile, are feeling so much and questioning it and delving. There's this joke about men trying to find their way, but what they won't do is stop and ask a question of somebody. How do I get to? They've got to figure it out themselves and not show that vulnerability of, I don't know. That's changing, thank God. As the old framework is falling to pieces, I think there's a genuine recognition by men that questions need to be asked and they need to be felt. And the desire to anchor your life in something truer to yourself. Bill, I'm curious how that sits with you. It's wonderful. Men need this kind of embodied mentoring desperately. We need that mentoring desperately. To reach out and ask for help and get that mentoring is a first step. And that's a challenge right there. And the other challenge is that everything that Philip talks about in terms of education and training and stuff like that, it makes me as a, as a man numb to so much that when you start waking up to it, it feels overwhelming. And sometimes I 
play around. And I tell Philip, I'm just wait, waiting for at some point, uh, hopefully my neurology will change <laughs> because I'm 70 years old. So it takes a long, the, the numbing process is a long process, but I find this work in the short amount of time really does help wake me up. And one of the ways that this work has really helped me as a man is I'm a U.S. citizen. We are a race-based country. Every white person I believe in this country pretty much has been trained in white body supremacy. We uh, grow up thinking that we're better than, more superior than, and that's part of the education. That is part of the education. This work, embodiment work, the way Phil talks about it, is a way to save myself, to save our culture, to save this country from white body supremacy. And that's the challenge for me because white body supremacy is all that cultural energy brought into the head and it, and it freezes there. And that's what's going on. You just look at our country right now. You'll see what's going on. You're seeing reaction, 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 reaction all the time. And we've got to settle down. So those are some thoughts. <laughs> Thank I really appreciate that, Bill. Thank you so much. All right. We have three questions that you just sparked, Bill. Um, Steve. Yeah, Bill summarized uh, the journey to this state of performance that I've explained earlier in myself. You know, baby boomer, white, a second generation from an immigrant family, you know, succeed, succeed, succeed. And when I was in counseling like 35, 30 years ago uh, to be trained as a counselor, my TA said, I hope you have lots of failure in your life, Stephen. And, and it took me about 15 or 20 years to get to the point of I'm completely unraveled right now. And I think that it's part of this dark night of the soul that the planet is experiencing. The answers that we are coming up with, the energy that we are using, the egoic energies that we are using is failing now. And the world is failing around us and the dissonance is shattering. And that's why I'm here <laughs> with you now. Thank you, Steve. Well, I'd love to invite Kishore and also Ron, who aren't looks like white-bodied people and definitely hear what you're thinking about this. And then we'll get to you, Joe. I just wanted to say, I've been living in this country for 30 odd years and grew up in India, where being colored is the majority. That's the country. And then I came here and for many, many years, I've been attending different workshops and I've been wondering, where are the men? What do they do? And my first one, which was like some 10, 12 years ago, there were 50 people in that workshop in San Diego, and I was the only guy other than the instructor and his wife. And and I, I had had a great time with all the lovely women there, but I was just like, <laughs> where are they? And so I just feel so, so much better um, being with this many men in workshops. And also, even though there are not as many colored men, I feel a stronger sense of belonging being in a more diverse group. And as we were talking, my daughter came by and sat down and listened, and then she had a question, but I'll wait till others have spoken. If we have the time, she wanted to ask a question. Lovely. Look forward to it. Great. Yes, we have one in the chat as well. So, Ron, please go ahead. Wow, what a, what a fascinating discussion. I, I can remember them. There are three things I want to say that Philip has alluded to 
which is that as well as receiving the cultural suppression of be good, be quiet, don't answer back, uh, all that sort of thing, I was born in England and so I also have a kind of inbuilt presentation mode so that I show up like everyone else so no one can tell. Mm-hmm. And I'm aware of that. So it's partly a dissonance and it's partly a survival strategy. And I'm only beginning to unravel those things in me now. If you'd have talked to me 40 years ago, I'm like, oh, I'm good. You know, I'm British. It's fine. It's not fine because I actually don't have a tribe where I live. I think that is the long and short of it. I'm not of this land, but I also am. And the one of the things I wanted to say is the place where we are equal to each other, the place where we all matter, is a place of such exquisite vulnerability that if you've got that oh, I'm okay thing, you don't want to go there. Why would you? If you've got a, a, a survival strategy that says, I'm fine because I've got my team and we all agree, whatever it is to be male, to be white, to be the boss, to be, you know, whatever it is, it's really hard. I mean, I can see how hard it is to let yourself be that vulnerable. And I feel it too. I've worked with Philip for, for a little while. And there are days when I feel that vulnerability. And there's a part of me that goes, nah, nah, nah leave me alone. Don't want to go there, you know. And yet it's the place where I'm both most obviously present And very powerful, because if I'm present, the entire earth is with me. So thank you for the wonderful discussion around this. And I think violence is also another coping strategy. If I can yell and scream and harm people, that will show them I'm not vulnerable. Pretend I'm not going to be like that. But yeah, that is that place where... We touch each other. Like Sarah was saying, it's just one body. So bring it on. This is the sort of work that I want to do myself. Anyway, thank you so much. And fascinating to be in this discussion. Thank you. We've got two more questions and then hopefully this can it in this doctor as well. So Joe, please, if you can make it a brief question, that would be fantastic. What I'd like to have some feedback on is the pelvic bowl. If you could just back up a little bit, because you've really covered so many beautiful areas. If you could just touch on that, that would be awesome. Yeah, I, I, I feel the pelvic bowl as the center of my being as distinct from the head which organizes doing. And if I'm in the head, I cannot feel the guidance of the present. And all I can do then is guide myself and think my way forward. And once I drop down to the pelvic bowl, I arrive in the present and attune to it and am guided forward by it. And it really feels Dropping the pelvic bowl does not exclude the thinking of the head. It includes it. 
By contrast, the thinking of the head excludes the body, excludes the pelvic bowl. So to bring them together is to recognize that the pelvic bowl is home. That is where I drop into my wholeness. I hope that clarifies that a little bit for you, Joe. Here's a question online. How do you release the feelings in the body when you feel so whole and sensitive to everything and everyone? I've been diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis and I'm struggling to release the pain I feel through being sensitive and embodied and whole. First of all, my compassion for you in that state. In my experience, I don't try to release the pain. I try not to resist it. I find that when I resist pain in my body, it gets stuck. If I can be with the pain, it generally becomes a little more fluid and is able to move in other ways. And I really side with the traditional Chinese medicine understanding that energy that is stuck in the body will cause distress. And and so to be with it without judgment, and in my experience, to bring that pain into relationship with my wholeness, into relationship with the pelvic bowl. So it's not compartmentalize it. When something hurts, our inclination is, well, we don't want this to spread. We compartmentalize it and get stuck. And how instead to bring it into relationship with the center, the core of your being. And I almost always find a little relief as something is allowed to integrate in that state. I I don't know that that'll be in any way helpful to you, but I hope it makes sense. So I would just like to honor that we're supposed to finish in five minutes, and I want to do our last little bits. And then if Philip, if you don't mind staying on, and Kishore, if you don't mind staying on, and I imagine you'd be willing to answer the daughter's question, if that's okay. I would be delighted. I just wanted to let you know about a few things coming up. I hope you all will listen to the Brilliant Body podcast. It's been up for about two months now, and it is so full of beauty and richness and amazing, brilliant bodied people sharing such important information and feeling and insight and guidance for the world at this time. So I really hope you'll go to any of your podcast platforms or go to YouTube and look up the Brilliant Body Podcast and you'll find us there. And hopefully Philip will be back again for we were gonna we threatened to do part two and I think this is already part two. So now we need to scheme about a part three, Philip, because I sure still have a lot of questions and I know other people will as well. So please listen to us and rate us and subscribe and push buttons and do all the stuff that we need in order to have more people know what we're doing and where we are. And then you can see my stuff if you're interested in all the beautiful things that I'm doing in the world to help people reclaim the brilliance of their bodies. And then there is, let's see, we have Philip Shepard's link so you can see what he's up to. And do either you or Allison want to toot your horn about anything coming up and letting people know how they can work with you and learn more from you and with you? 
Well, we've got some in-person events that I mentioned. There's one coming up in Boise in early March, a workshop there. And we're in Europe mid-May to early June in Vienna and Basel and Oxford, England and Ireland. And it'll be a joy to see anyone there. And we also have quite a, an active online presence. We have an online community that's free to join that's on the website. We have a membership that provides practices and Zoom calls and a number of other things. And what am I missing, Alison? That's pretty complete. We both also do one-on-one coaching. And then we have some other virtual workshops from time to time. So they're always listed on our website. It'd be fun to see any of you there. Fantastic. And my awesome co-producer Flo just put in the chat to me as well in response to Ron's question. The episode with Sarah Payton goes deeply into feeling connected to the land and also disconnected at the same time. And we're doing another event bright on March 25th. And then on, I believe, April 8th, we've got the amazing integral anatomist Gil Headley, who is not to be missed. He's really phenomenal and has been uh, reverently dissecting bodies for decades and has a perspective on the living body that is exquisitely informed by his meticulous and um, enlightened, I would say, work that he's doing with bodies. So I hope you'll join us on those two. You can find them both on Eventbrite or on the brilliantbodypodcast.com. And anything else either of you want to just put in there? I just want to thank you so much for being here. I absolutely loved it. And it just encourages me and heartens my journey forward in this troubled world. So thank you all for being here. It really gives me courage to continue knowing that I share this planet and the love for this planet with all of you. So thank you for being here. I'm truly touched by your presence. As am I, as am I. Thank you. Yeah. And if anybody wants to stay on, I don't know if suddenly this link is going to self-destruct and we're all going to disappear into something or whether we can just stay on um, for as long as Philip is willing to, to hang with us a little longer. So we are officially done. I'm not good with time either. So I met my obligation there. And okay, we're seeing it's Kishore's daughter. Please join yeah. us. I was just saying or thinking like, if I inhabit my body and feel into my wholeness, then maybe I can get a sense of like, oh, I'm hungry or I'm thirsty or like I want to go for a walk. But then like, how were you able to use inhabiting your body to find your like sum in, in the world? Or like when it comes up into your head and you're like in the real world, doesn't it kind of pull you away from it? Or going up into your head pulls you away from the real world. Um, Let me just say that I almost never find myself making decisions, like making a decision. I feel my way forward. I feel what is being asked of me next. I feel where to go next, what to attend to next. And it's such a relief not to be devising my way forward in the head, but to be at rest in the present and feeling where I am pulled next, feeling what is appropriate next, whether it's, you know, eating food or taking care of an email or whatever it might be. And I just find it 
a relief to live that way. And it's only as I inhabit the body that that becomes possible. And then you just like found one day that you were doing what you were summoned for just by like making those choices. I, I wouldn't say one day, I'd say more like in the span of a few decades. <laughs> <laughs> but it's incremental, bit by bit, you deepen into your most reliable, deepest resource, which is your attunement to the present. Yeah, thank you for that question. Thank you. Yeah. Can I just add to that too? It's making me feel so much both nostalgia, positive and negative, and compassion for being a young person who does not necessarily yet know what they are here to do or truly want to do because of all the pressures of culture and family and money and all these things. And a lot of us, unless you were just gifted with knowing what you wanted to do when you came out of the womb or shortly thereafter, for a lot of us, it really takes decades. It can take a really long time, but I find that you just keep following the breadcrumbs and the threads of that tapestry and the older you get, the more that tapestry weaves together if you allow yourself to follow those threads. So that doesn't always mean you're making great money while you're doing that, while you're weaving away. But I know that now, finally, in my 60s, I'm kind of like, yes, I'm finally like, this is what I came to do. But it took a while. So my pom-poms are blazing for you as you discover what that is. And, and it's multiple iterations it can be a, a long but beautiful path so yeah thank you anybody else feel that way now that a lot of us are middle-aged so we can really just keep unfolding but we're not taught that you know yeah absolutely absolutely yeah anybody else want to ask a question or make a comment or allison were you going to say something I was just going to say what a delight it is to listen to you, Ali. You speak with so much compassion and aliveness and and vulnerability. You don't shy away from things that uh, might be uncomfortable, and it's just deeply appreciated. That means so much to me. I'm finding that, not surprisingly, which is further along the lines of what I was just saying about youth, is that so many of us feel like weirdos. I always have. And I've lived in so many different places as an adult and been in so many groups. And in general, I can't say I've really felt I belonged in most of them. And yet, the more I'm doing the work that I feel summoned to do, the more I recognize all of you as being part of me and me being part of all of you, because I'm I uh, I can't not do this anymore, you know, mm -hmm. even though it's really frightening to become public because for so long I was in my hidey hole developing my expertise and my uh, guidance and all these things. And I was asking Philip earlier actually about what it's like for him to go be in the public as you've been making such a profound commitment in these last several years since I've known you of coming out into the public, not as an actor, but as a teacher and a leader. 
and how that may be different for you. And I'm finding it to be a very vulnerable thing to do for sure. And at the same time, I cannot not do it. I can't deny it because who knows if we're all blowing up in the next five years. <laughs> I feel like no time to lose now. I got to give this to the planet in case it's worth anything. So just curious what you guys think about that or anybody else want to comment on that? I like your phrase, I can't not do it. The first book I wrote, New Self, New World, took me 10 years to write through four completely different iterations. And people have commented, oh, how wonderful that you could keep at it and not give up. And it's like, no, no, it was it was more painful not to be writing than it was to be writing. It, it just, I couldn't not do it. It might have been more painful for me. I think it might have been. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's been such a pleasure to be with you all. I, I really cherish your presence and your company, and of course, your questions through this. And uh, hopefully we can come back for another time. Is that a sign off? Because it looks like Bill wants to say something. The only thing I was just going to add was I, I was thinking of Kashiri's daughter and listening to all of us old folks say it takes decades. And I was thinking one thing that would have helped me 40 years ago would be what Philip said, that that starting point, just feel your breath and begin at a younger age, preparing that landing spot. Yeah. <laughs> and I was thinking that taking that to high schools and stuff like this, it just begin to find a landing spot would have been really helpful because I didn't have my breath available to me when I was younger. And when I, I had an anxiety disorder at 22 and had panic attacks, I didn't know how to, I didn't have a breath as a landing spot. So, you know, you start earlier, you may know a lot earlier than I did what the world's asking of you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, please spread this far and wide. I imagine Philip's going to be putting it out there in his ways. And of course, his beautiful work and Philip and Allison's beautiful work is going to continue. And we're just going to keep putting it out there as much as we can and hope that it helps people in the world and the other animal species in the world too that need our help as well. So I send you all my... Thanks, and thank you so much for your support, Philip. It oh. reads the world to us. It really does. I feel so good about the whole thing, what what you're doing, the way you're doing it, who you are, and what you bring to it. Couldn't thank you. Be <laughs> yeah. Taking that all the way home to the heart bank. <laughs> right in. That was a big deposit right there. Thank you. Uh, lots of love. Take care, everyone. Yeah. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed listening to this conversation as much as we enjoy orchestrating these events and connecting you with embodiment pioneers such as Philip and so many more to come. Check out our website at www.thebrilliantbodypodcast.com and keep an eye on our socials for our next event announcements. You'll find all the links mentioned in this episode in the show notes below. Thank you so much for watching or listening. If you have a minute, please subscribe and leave a review. I know it's just bleh to have to sit and write and we've all got so much to do. But hey, wherever you're tuning in from, this really helps us connect with so many more brilliant bodies in the world who would love to know about this podcast. Thank you for taking the time.
I hope you found this episode inspiring. If you'd like to learn more about the many ways I'm encouraging and guiding the wider world to reclaim the brilliance of the body, please visit my website at www.alimezey.com. Until the next episode and beyond, reclaim your brilliant body. The Brilliant Body Podcast was created by Ali Mazay. This episode was co-produced and edited by Ali Mazay and Florence Popoff. Thanks to Florence Popoff also for my social media management and to composer Blair, Mr. One Man Ben Wilson for my theme music.